I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello. Hey, Sam. How's it going? Well, very good. It's very hot. It's very hot. Yeah. How are you how are you coping in the heat? Badly. Any coping strategies? Stay indoors. That's a good one. And uh, you know, we're a film podcast, but just the trip to the cinema, that's a lot of ground to cover, a mm-hmm. lot of sun to be exposed to. So I've been just staying at home and watching Netflix movies. Nice. Uh primarily Always Be My Maybe, which is the Ali Wong Randall Park. I saw uh, a trailer for it because yeah. people were talking about the Keanu Reeves cameo. The yeah. YouTube thumbnail was of Keanu Reeves pulling a funny face. So you watch the trailer and you're like, where's Keanu Reeves? Where is he? And then yeah. he turns up right at the end. It's not a movie really about him. He is the funniest part of that movie, but it does kind of unbalance the film a bit. It's almost like the film exists purely for this Keanu Reeves cameo in the middle. Really? So you, yeah, you're sort strange. of laughing heartily in the Keanu Reeves cameo and the rest of the time not. Well, it was... Had something going for it in that it was like a sort of rom com with a Chinese American and a Korean American, you know, like post Crazy Rich Asians. It's like, oh, you know, more diversity in rom coms is good. And it seems like Netflix are the only company making rom coms. It's a bit of a dead genre in the cinema. Yeah, I see what you mean. And uh, it's very like good natured. Except, except for Richard Curtis and Danny Ball, of course. Of course, of course. We'll get to this. Uh, and the leads are very charming and they've known each other for 20 years in real life. So you can sort of tell that they've got very natural chemistry with each other. But it's very much a Netflix movie. You know, it's slightly half-baked. Slightly half-baked. I mean, maybe that's the trade-off. On one hand, they just produce films which studios won't make. But on the other hand, they don't give them any notes. So they come out a little bit overlong and ramshackle. But I don't know. It did feel a bit like a sort of Netflix algorithm had made it. It's like uh, fresh off the boats, doing really well, and the Ali Wong stand-up specials are good. So we'll just put these numbers together, crunch it. Keanu Reeves, everyone loves John Wick. <laughs> Stick him in there. <laughs> that, probably, that probably is how these <laughs> crazy rich get agents made, made a billion or whatever. Yeah, mathematically, this is a surefire hit. I don't know. It was okay. Maybe not as good as like the individual. It's kind of interesting components. to see like Netflix pursue a studio mindset, but with a slightly different model. You know, it's got the, exactly the same approach to filmmaking, but driven by like a different set of data because their model <laughs> yeah. is different to major studios. Um, I was just on two long haul flights to and from San Francisco, which you think would be prime time for me, uh, hoovering in a lot of crap films I could entertainingly speak about. But I actually didn't spend very much of that time watching movies. Watch any movies? Well, on the way on the way back, my headphone jack didn't work, Ugh. so I couldn't watch a single film as I wanted to watch a silent film. But I didn't do that. <laughs> and uh, uh, and on the way out, um, I only managed about three quarters of bad times at the El Royale. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Which was pretty meh, I would say. My my review of that is that it's uh, it's got that problem of imitating something which itself was imitating other movies. Right. To wit, Tarantino, basically. It's like a combination of the bit where they go to the 50s-themed restaurant and the tense basement scene from Inglourious Bastards. Right, okay. Yeah. The, the 50s-themed restaurant from Pulp Fiction is what I meant to say. You know, it's like cool guys. They're all in the same space. They've all got like dark secrets. They're all very tense. They're all talking to each other, but they really mean different things and violence ensues and stuff. Oh, no. But it was all, yeah, it's, all, it's a bit silly. It did seem like a bit of a throwback from the trailer. Throwback and throw away. <laughs> Put that back in the, I, I don't know. Yeah. 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 So don't, don't worry about that. Just don't worry about it. You probably had this niggling thought about your head, like, I better watch that film, Bad Times at the El Royale, but you can just dispense with that thought. You don't need Phew, to watch that it. that is a load off my mind. <laughs> No problem. So, uh, Danny, when I'm not uh, reassuring you about a film that you had absolutely no intention of watching that you don't need to see, uh, what are we doing on this podcast? Let me explain to you. So Film Chat is a podcast all about a demon called Sam Foster who falls in love with a woman called Danny Moran and conjures up a bed on which to make a love to her. However, Danny... (laughs) 
Why don't I just find a bed? No, no, you're a demon. (laughs) You can conjure stuff. However, Danny dies during the act. And in his grief, Sam Foster weeps tears of blood which fall on the bed and cause it to come to life. While Sam Foster rests, the bed's evil is contained. But once every 10 years, Sam Foster wakes, giving the bed the power to physically eat human beings. Only one man, an artist identified as Aubrey Beardsley, was spared as the bed condemned him to immortality behind a painting where he must forever witness the bed taking victims. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 1977 film Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. This is in fact just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me, a man who, were we to make love, we could just uh, use this bed here. I mean, there's one right in this room right now, so no conjuring required. Sam Foster. Hello, Danny. On this episode, you will be reviewing a pair of well-received indie films from liked and respected directors. Peter Strickland's In Fabric, a horror movie about a haunted dress. And Andrew Bajalski's Support the Girls, a comedy about the well-meaning manager of a Hooters-esque sports bar. I haven't seen either of them, but on paper they sound great. Peter Strickland is an inventive and stylish director, and the haunted dressing is a playful premise. Meanwhile, Bajalski's previous film, Computer Chess, was a lot of fun, and he seems to be moving out of the mumblecore genre for which he's best known in an appealing way. Uh, I'd probably have had a great time at this cinema checking either of those out. Instead, in what is maybe a sign of my dwindling sense of self-respect, it's probably indicative of some greater problems that we can't really discuss here. I went by myself to see Yesterday, the film about what if the Beatles didn't exist, written by Richard Curtis and directed by Danny Boyle. Sounded like it would be shit, and it was. Got to change my priorities, Danny. Questioning myself a lot. What am I doing with my life? Uh, We're also going to be discussing Matthew Vaughan's Kingsman universe, which is expanding into the past (laughs) with a confusingly named sequel. And we'll be talking about the latest project to emerge from the heartwarming, Borg-like collective intelligence of Pixar. All of that should leave me just enough time to announce my latest project, a charming romantic comedy with a wacky what-if premise in which I get hit by a bus. And when I wake up, I'm the only person in the world who can remember Jeremy Renner's hit song, Heaven Don't Have a Name. Heaven Don't Have a Name. I release the song and become the most famous person in the world. Then I realize I'm the only person in the world who remembers the monologue from Brad Pitt's Chanel advert. It's not a journey. Every journey ends, but we go on. The world turns and we turn with it. Plans disappear. Dreams take over. But wherever I go, there you are. My luck, my fate, my fortune. Chanel number five. Inevitable. I pitch that to Chanel and become the most wealthy person who's ever existed. Then I realize I'm the only person in the world who remembers that Justin Bieber tweet about wanting to fight Tom Cruise. I can't capitalize on that. It's not monetizable. (laughs) (laughs) Then I realize that all of this fame and wealth is hollow, really. And I give all of my money to comic relief. And I just retire. (laughs) Maybe I might find the girl of my dreams or something like that. What do you think? I think it sounds great. Yeah, he's he's gonna play the girl of your dreams. Uh, um, one of the lilies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one Collins, of the lilies. Cole, James, they're all the same. Yeah, find some tousle-headed Cons- young Cons- British actress. I will, I will consider the lilies as Jesus advised. Films, 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 films. Lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love. Weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Boone films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short, films six hours long. We've got films up to your gills with films, 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 movies. Are you feeling comfortable? Film chat has begun. We got a nice message from a, a listener we've not heard from before. What? Which is, we knew they're out there. They're out there. I thought they were Russian bots, but they might really be real people. <laughs> well, we, it's impossible to tell with this person. That's the, I mean, the, it looks like the Russian bot has gone to a lot of effort <laughs> and it, to an uncertain reward. But you never know. It's, you can't trust anything in this Fake news era. Um, it's Serena Watson Follett. She's written in to say, hello, big fan of the show here. Thank you, Serena. Thank you. You're right up there with one of our 
yeah, in our single digit numbers, you're right up there. Uh, though I'd like to hear more episodes like the one about insect animations where you analyze older films along a theme. It would be interesting to look at the, the messages of some Miyazaki films like Porco Rosso and Nausicaa, considering he used to be a communist. Cheers. Thank you, Serena. I myself am not particularly well-versed in the Miyazaki Studio Ghibli back catalogue, uh, but that's a great idea. Maybe we should do that. Maybe I should just sit down and mainline some old animations. Well, they're all brilliant, so... Yeah, you see, you've, you, you've seen many more of them than I have. I've you? seen many, many more, but I watched them as a, you know, as a teenager when I was stupid, and I was like, oh... You weren't, people... looking, in, you weren't looking for communist messages in no, them. No, I was like, oh, I like the colours... Like, yeah. like an idiot but now i'd watch it and i'll be like actually <laughs> now i like the now, themes. now i like the themes <laughs> the colors are still good but the themes <laughs> the themes are really good i really like the themes <laughs> i really like the themes yeah um so we'll definitely do that you've got like an ma to complete or something but that'll I... just fill your head with all this political stuff and then you'll just be your brain will be sharpened into like a point and I'm, then i'm gonna spend the next couple of months writing an ma dissertation about boris johnson then i'll i'll uh marathon you know, well, 10 then, Miyazaki Studio Ghibli movies in a row, and then I'll just explain why they're all about Boris Johnson, because <laughs> that's the only way I'll be able to understand anything. That'll be good radio, though. That'll be such good radio, <laughs> won't it? That's going to be a hot take. Yeah. You were saying a second ago, in a bit that I'm sure we'll edit out, that um, <laughs> that there's a, already a, a Studio Ghibli podcast. Yeah. And But have they ever discussed why Princess Mononoke is really about uh, Boris Johnson? Has, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there's like an evil sort of wriggling, monstrous worm pig sort of fucking everything up. I mean, if, if that... If that <laughs> that's if, true. It's if a, that's that... a, a demon-haunted pig. I mean, if that's not Boris Johnson, I don't know what is. Yeah. I mean, His... Spirited Away has that sort of uh, corpulent, uh, disgusting demon that eats everything. I mean, if that's not that's Bojo. Boris, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know what is. My neighbor Totoro's got that bus that's like a cat. That's Boris. I'm pretty sure that cat bus had like something about how many millions we sent to the EU and we could use it to fund the NHS. I think Memory so, yeah. serves. It has some dialogue about bananas bendiness. Yeah. Yeah. So that's gonna be the um that's gonna be the hat we'll be wearing for that. But I'm sure it will still be an excellent episode and a hit episode. Anyway, it's good to it's good to get some nice feedback on our change of format there. Because that was us pushing the boat out a little bit. I know. We've certainly not repeated since. Um and we we ought to. We've only had one comment about it and it was positive, <laughs> so let's plow on. <laughs> Excellent. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. Everybody's favorite animation studio, Pixar, are currently riding high at the box office with Toy Story 4, which we haven't seen, but apparently it's pretty good. I was a bit mer about it, about the idea of it. But who knows? They're geniuses, right? It must be amazing. Probably. Who knows? We could find out. Uh, but they recently announced a slightly more exciting sounding film, which is going to be called Soul. And what we know about it is that it is a journey from the streets of New York City to the cosmic realms to discover the answers to life's most important questions. And perhaps most exciting of all, it is going to be helmed by Pete Docter, the genius behind Up and Inside Out and Monsters, Inc., who is now the head of Pixar after John Lester was booted out for being Me Too'd. Being Me Too'd? Being, being a sexual harasser. Being a sexual harasser. He himself was a Me Too'd. Yeah. I've used that phrase, <laughs> the opposite of how it should be used <laughs> there. Um, but I would say he's the most conceptually bold of the lot of them. And his films, I think, have just got better in a way. Like, kind of the plotting. The t Inside Out was kind of like a perfect movie. And it's kind of funny that I was like, surely that's the... It was got to be the most uh, like transcendent his films can be. Yeah, I mean, I remember when that came out, there was a sort of joke where all Pixar movies are just like an animal or an object with like has feelings, and then Inside Out was like, what if the feelings have feelings? Yeah. But now it's like, how can I push it even further? What if the soul has feelings? Anyway, I just I have faith in Pete Doctor. I think he's brilliant. So yeah, it's got to be good. Do you think that he is after the success of Inside Out, he's now just using children's animations to uh, lay out a thesis about the whole meaning of life or of human existence because inside out was kind of an exploration of the nature of consciousness yeah in an interesting way now he's going to uh uh well he says the the vague log line here is ever wonder where your passion your dreams and your interests come from what is it that makes you you 
yeah so that's another kind of internally focused dissection of uh humankind well a lot of pixar movies are kind of about existential crises right all the toy story is about finding your place in the world yeah in monsters inc their entire questions his entire meaning of his existence is tied up in being able to scare kids and like yes the reversal of that uh, now I'm struggling to think of all the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> and all the other films also do that. Well, uh, Up is about uh, an old man trying to come to terms with the loss of his wife. Yeah. Coco is all about mortality. Yeah. They're a very existential, angsty bunch, the Pixar people. They're getting more directly philosophical, perhaps. Maybe it's just you get older, you know? This is just as death marches towards you. I mean, Peter was only 50, so... <laughs> <laughs> He's not, he's not the young, wide-eyed innocent who made Monsters, Inc. Yeah, as death rings your doorbell <laughs> and you contemplate your imminent demise. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I mean, um, it sounds incredibly ambitious. I don't. I guess that's what you want from, uh, you know, original projects. Like, it's not the kind of um, my elephant has lost its balloon style <laughs> of uh, filmmaking. Or, yeah, know, it feels a bit animation. like... And especially when like, the rest of Disney is just doing sequels and remakes and stuff like that. And Pixar's like, I think we're going to make a film about the meaning of life, you know, and explore, give the meaning of life a, a, a cool voice and, you know, make it a person. Absolutely. And it does feel a bit like their business model now is like, we get to do one super crazy out there project and then we'll do like a sequel. And the next slated release is this movie called Onward, which is about... Sounds like a sort of animated version of Bright, some sort of modern future suburbia where Lord of the Rings is real and there's elves and trolls and stuff, and it's about like a road trip with Chris Pratt and Tom Holland. That sounds as conceptually. That bold. sounds like a DreamWorks movie. Yeah, um, but maybe like that's the trade-off with the investors. It's like fine, well, you can make your crazy out there spiritual movie, despite the fact that every Pixar movie grosses a billion. I don't know why they wouldn't just like trust them. <laughs> yeah, to they do should it. just just do those. Um, I mean, uh, also you know, it's, prob- it's probably true that not that many ideas that exist. You know. Probably yeah. just beat Dog who's coming out with these. Yeah. And everybody else is like, it's about an elf who uh, goes on a trip with his friends. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, I think, like, the best Pixar movies are the one with the the best, like, one-line pitches. I think, I think like, you know... The, yeah, the concept of Monsters, Inc. is just absolutely fantastic. I think yeah. it's probably the single best, like, elevator pitch, like, uh, uh, film that Pixar has, has come yeah, out absolutely. with. Yeah, absolutely. Like, Toy Story, the toys are alive, and one of the toys doesn't know he's a toy. That's so much better than uh, the fish gets lost, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, if you just reduce all the premises down to one uh, sentence, you can pick out which ones are the best, and they are the best. Yeah. So on that basis... Do you think Pete Doctor is turning into the children's animation version of Christopher Nolan? It's like each project is getting vaster and more ambitious. Yes. You know, it's, turning in, it's getting increasingly sort of cosmic and epic. Christopher Nolan was like... I, I've after my Batman films, I don't know where I'm going to go. So I'm going to make a film that's all about space and time and about how you know love literally can pass through time or something. I reckon what happened after the Dark Knight, he he just took a lot of acid, right? He went to the desert. He touched the skin of reality. Explains Inception. Explains like how bored he was by Batman in like the first <laughs> thing. He's like, I've 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 communed with God by this point. I can't be making Batman, and now that's all he. You know, life holds no interest for him. He has to build worlds because yeah. reality is just so mundane to him. Right, exactly. I think that's what I think that's what Pete Doctor is. is maybe doing. it was the same trip. Maybe they maybe they maybe, maybe they're friends. Yeah, they went to the desert and took ayahuasca powder together, and we're all reaping the benefits. And it's great for us, the audience. Say <laughs> so, thanks to those guys. Yeah, it sounds cool. I'm I'm looking forward to it. We often say, can't wait. But this one, this one, we kind of mean sincere. Can't wait. How about a, how about an insincere? <laughs> a little insincerity. A little insincerity. Absolutely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Someone we're often mocking and complaining about <laughs> is Matthew Vaughan, the director of the Kingsman franchise, which uh, had a really terrible sequel from a bad f- initial film. And there was a television series announced 
right? Yeah. Um, and the whole it, universe. The whole universe has erupted. And uh, he's also preparing the third film in the series, which is not going to be a direct sequel to uh, Kingsman, whatever. The, I think I remember what it was called. The Golden Circle. The Golden Circle. Uh, instead, it is going to be a sort of a prequel, and it's called The King's Man. So it's not Kingsman anymore. It's The King's Man. It's exactly the same word, but the intonation is a bit different. Sure. Oh, I kind of like that, actually. It'd be like it'd be like the Fast and Furious sequel being called The Fast and Furious. <laughs> Um, and uh, so this one's a prequel. It's a period drama. We've got an official description of the plot of the film. As a collection of history's worst tyrants and criminal masterminds gather to plot a war to wipe out millions, one man must race against time to stop them. This is set in the early 1900s. Judging by the Wikipedia page and the cast on it, that war it sounds like it's going to be the First World War, <laughs> which did happen. So is this film going to be about... A failure? Maybe it would have been even worse about the Kingsman. Just would have been even worse. <laughs> <laughs> that could, uh, yeah. Who knows? That might be it. Um, anyway, the Wikipedia page for the Kingsman's got a great, it's got a great list of casts. I mean, I didn't, you know, I don't like Matthew Vaughan, but reading this, I'm getting pretty excited. Okay, Ray Fiennes is playing T. E. Lawrence, Lawrence Arabia. That guy's in it. Brilliant. You can't have a film with Lawrence of Arabia in it that doesn't also have uh, General Kitchener in it. So he's being played by Liam Neeson. Uh, you've also got in there Daniel Brühl, who's playing someone called Felix Yusupov, um, who helped to assassinate Rasputin. He's in it as well. The played Mad by, Monk. Yeah, played by Reese Fans. You've got Charles Dance as uh, General Haig. <laughs> he's in it. Of course. <laughs> you've got Tom Hollander. He's in there. Uh, he is playing all of George V, Wilhelm II, and Nicholas II. He's the king's, Sa- he's the king's man. Well, he's the king's man. Yeah, he's playing three kings. Stanley Tucci is in it. He's playing Merlin. Have they cast him because he looks a little bit like um, what's his face? He plays Merlin in the previous Kingsman films. What the fuck? Oh, is his name? Mark Strong. Mark Strong. They're both right, kind of bold, yeah. suave-looking guys. Obeying Stanley Baldwin. Tucci is the early twentieth-century equivalent. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what to say about this, except that it sounds ridiculous. Oh yeah, it's also got the guy who assassinated Archie Franz Ferdinand. Uh, <laughs> And he's being played by someone I've never heard of called Robert Aramayo. Right. Mad. Is there going to be, you know, I think we discussed this in the Golden Circle review, how there was like the sort of, uh, the well, the American, the statesmen mm. who were like this sort of US branch. Is there going to be a German branch of the Kingsmen, like the Kaisermen, and like a Russian branch, the Karoli Shalokov? Kaisermensch. <laughs> Karoli Shalovic. Is that? Did you do some Russian I research? Google translated uh, Kingsman. Nice, nice. You were ready for this segment. Uh, that's all I've Didn't done. Catch you that's, on the that's all I've done to <laughs> research this segment. <laughs> I'm fascinated by it. I've, in, a, in a way, I feel uh, the 1900s is maybe just suits Matthew Vaughan's politics a bit more. You know, the problem with Kingsman is there's such like retrograde characters and stuff. I mean, you probably wish he lived in the 1900s. Back when the you could just movie. kill the darkies and the foreigners and they're all <laughs> wrong and evil. The good old days. I feel that's kind of what Kingsman's about, isn't it? Like, Yeah, well, it's it's obviously a very nostalgic film because it's all, I mean, they are this ancient order and it's all about... Loves the empire loving, and all that. Dressing like an old gent and speaking Latin and all this kind of thing. And the, yeah, the the first Kingsman movie is this highly elitist film about like a working class kid who finds out that his dad went to Wheaton, so he's allowed to go there, basically. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then the second one is just like a mess. It doesn't, I don't know what the fuck it's saying at all. It's just a complete mess. And then I guess on the third one, he's got even less to say. So he's like, why don't we just set it in a period setting? Everyone is still wearing nice clothes and stuff. But it's just, I mean, just judging from the very little we know and reading about it, it sounds like it's not, it's going to not going to have any kind of analysis. You know, I imagine what it will say is like the people in charge are stupid. That was, that's a thread that has kind of run through the Kingsman films. Sure. It's up to the king's man. It's up to the smart uh, elite people to uh, take on the stupid other elite people. Gotcha. And um, uh, yeah, so I imagine it's going to embrace that silliness. What it reminds me of a little bit is the death of Stalin, like someone who's taking their analysis of the contemporary world that they used, you know, to tell a contemporary tale and just applying it to the past. Sure. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> well, but it's like, yeah. like the Death of Stalin was a bit like an in-the-loop remake, but in the early 20th century. Now he's like kind of doing Kingsman in the early 20th century. But how's he going to... I mean, what's the sort of 
retrograde sort of uh, anal sex or fingering joke going to be in the 1900s? Just sees a woman's uh, ankles. Maybe. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? It's, it's period appropriate. No doubt there will be a gag that's almost yeah. exactly like that. We yeah. kept on referencing as if it's like some iconic line, the sort of bum shot from Kingsman. Like it was his like boulder rolling towards Indiana Jones style thing in his own filmography. <laughs> <laughs> like this is the one thing I remember before. Yeah. So I want to see what the That's 19- the shower scene from yeah. Psycho from. What's going to be the 1913 twist on it? You've got to have a, one scene where the spy does something absolutely disgusting to a woman. Yeah. That's that's really important. But maybe by the standards of the day, it's just holding her hand or something. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I mean, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna get a cracked rib if that's if that's how the movie turns out, because that sounds like a fucking uh, rib tickler. Can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> Cannot wait. Mr. Silas, this young lady is flashing her privates. Oh well, I'll dispose of this. <laughs> all for Silas. All for Silas. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it oscar-jingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off So, Support the Girls. This is written directed by Andre Bujowski, director of Computer Chess, as you mentioned in your intro, and Results, which was a slightly more mainstream effort in that, uh, you know, had tripods and money and uh, some people you recognised in it. And he came up through Mumblecore and has become increasingly slicker. Seems like a sort of slightly pejorative word to use, but less mumbly, I guess. Less mumbly. Less mumbly. Can, they're really enunciating now. Yeah, the diction in these news movies are <laughs> incredible. Um, so the plot is that Regina Hall plays Lisa. She's a kind-hearted boss for a Hooters-esque restaurant called Double Whammies. And it's a day-in-the-life kind of structure, and she has to deal with customers a douchebag boss, and a failing marriage, all the while trying to do the best by her fellow female employees. Here's a clip of her and her second-in-command, Macy, played by Hayley Lee Richardson, fielding questions from some potential new staff members. Can I ask, do you get, like, grabbed? It happens. Yeah, like when someone's super wasted or whatever, but it's pretty rare, and you can usually tell when something like that's coming, you know, and just kind of, like, Let me just say this. Uh, We have a zero-tolerance policy on it. You know, I don't mind calling the cops if customers commit the crime of sexual Mm -hmm. assault. And trust me, I don't have to call far because you know what? We have a lot of officers who are regulars. And Officer Dominguez is a cutie, I think. Uh, But seriously, y'all, let me just say, the most important thing is that this is a mainstream place, you know, and it's a family place, which means a lot of families come here, and it also means that we're all family. And yeah, you're not, you know, you're not wearing a a whole lot of clothes, but trust me, if these guys wanted to go to a strip club, they know where to find them. They just come here so some sweet girls can take good care of them. It's like like working at at Chili's or Applebee's, except it's more fun and the tips are way better. Usually. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I think it's not doing anything particularly groundbreaking and new, but it's just very good at what it does. Chief among it is this. Chief among the things I like about it is the structure. I've like, I'm a sucker for day in the life structures. I think they just sort of they work. They are inherently make things quite pacey, and I think it's a really good bit of writing from Andrew Bujowski to sort of like weave in all these events that happen during the day, and uh, never feels like it's too manufactured. Even though it's kind of got all these dramatically, you know, everything's coming to a head on the same day. Everyone's arguing at the same time. It kind of also feels that it is like any other day, which is the kind of theme of the movie is the emotional toil of work and how much uh, it drains out of you. And all the discussions about working conditions are usually about practical things about health and safety and pay and workers' hours. But the actual sort of uh, attrition of just having to deal with people is rarely discussed. This is the kind of theme of this movie, and it does it really eloquently. It's also 93 minutes long. I think it's like one of the shortest films I've seen in a while. And I was like, you can make a great film in 93 minutes. Most complaints of the film's review is like, it's too long. We'll get onto this in a bit. Uh, <laughs> I know this is, seems like a very arbitrary point, but it just, you know, it just is very good at what it does, does not stay as welcome, and it really sticks its landing. And I think. Uh, it's a real performance-driven movie as well, and it's got this very naturalistic style uh, where nothing is too arch. It's all based on the characters, and uh, Hayley Richardson is like this great character who's unbelievably upbeat 
and she has kind of great comic foil with this this other character played by the rapper Jungle Pussy. I wasn't familiar with Jungle Pussy's output. I listened to a few of her tracks. Did you like them? Yeah, pretty good. Who's like very sardonic and is not a natural waitress. And uh, there's a lot of just winning comedy out of that kind of double act. And it's all held together by Regina Hall, who's probably best known as a comic actress. She was in the scary movie franchise and she's in Girls Trip. I think this might be a rare leading role for her. And she's just brilliant in it. It's a real tour de force. And it's a very juicy role in that when you first meet her, she's crying in her car and then she sort of gets her shit together and starts her day. And you basically see her sort of navigate all these different situations where she is at one hand sort of in charge of all the people around her, but she is beholden to the customers and also her douchebag boss and just trying to maintain her dignity and do right by people while under all these pressures are just uh it's very well done there's a lot of a lot of acting i would say that sounds very yeah but it's just like there's a lot going on under the surface and maybe i think it's a bit of brilliant writing that you first meet her at this like low point so you kind of know that she's navigating all these things and putting all these different masks but you just really root for her and she's such a sort of decent nice person and like her kind of spirit infuses the film it's a real case of the director kind of loves his characters and you can really tell and you really just root for you really want to support these girls you want to support the girls you want to support the bloody girls and it ends with a really brilliantly judged ending which kind of made the whole movie better uh because i think like a problem with these types of films that often they can seem they're so naturalistic they film a they feel a bit effortless or they're not that impactful because they're not supposed to be like it's not a hilarious movie it's quite funny and it's not like gonna make you really sad it's just a bit melancholy yeah yeah uh, melancholy melancholic even yeah, a bit melancholy a bit melancholy um but the end kind of has a sort of exclamation point in a way that kind of makes you reflect back on the film and like oh it's much sort of it's kind of effortless in how kind of cleverly constructed it is so it's not an incredible film but it was i just thoroughly enjoyed it and it's the kind of movie that uh doesn't get made that often it feels like a sort of when people was complaining about the kind of mid-budget movie disappearing and maybe it's just disappeared into indie cinema but even that seems to be like drying up a bit so i'd say go out and su- support the girls support support the girls support support the girls and if you don't uh you hate women have nice. you seen the film no i watched yesterday that's <laughs> <laughs> got a girl in it a really well-written female character Incredible. it was such a feminist film my favorite film stars bridget bardo she's the queen but she wants to be in radio so she starts a podcast with her friends and the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end all right danny you're up again oh boy You've got more reviewing to do i saw many many months ago at london film festival i saw in fabric right after watching if bill Street could talk the perfect way to view a peter strickland movie is after being put through the emotional ring of a barry jenkins movie I've got the official synopsis. In Fabric is a haunting ghost story set against the backdrop of a busy winter's sale period in a department store and follows the life of a cursed dress as it passes from person to person with devastating consequences. Here is a clip of the dress's first victim, uh, Sheila, played by Marianne Jean-Baptiste, and she is buying the dress from a very creepy, eerie, dress-selling woman. It's a weird (laughs) film. And may I interest you in other desired supposes in our exclusive boutique? I'm fine for now, thank you. Then I would like you to announce your locus of residence, followed by the numbers to your telephone. Sheila Wallchapel, 16 Ferndale Road, Thames Valley on Thames, 01632-960-786. Um, I love this movie. I'm not really sure what it's about, but I had a total blast watching it. The only other Peter Strickland movie I've seen is The Duke of Burgundy, which I sort of liked, but I know you, I think you preferred it much more to me, but I found it, uh, the atmosphere is so thick I couldn't get into it. Uh, but this one is far more accessible and far more like overtly comedic. I know uh, Duke of Burgundy has like comedy in it, but I, I think when I watched it, I didn't know quite now what i was looking at you know yeah, maybe yeah. if i watched it a second time now i've got a more of a handle on this thing yeah but i think this is much more if you're a strickland newbie uh or maybe you didn't get much out of duke and burgundy this might be more your speed it starts with some very broad comic moments that kind of set you up for the kind of film it is 
And I think this is a very good approach to the material, uh, not just because it makes it funny and entertaining, but the premise is inherently silly, and it just it just allows the audience like it's okay, it is funny. Yeah, it kind of yeah, like yeah. sets you at ease early on, because I think uh, if it was trying to fight that, I mean, a lot of horror horror movies are like really stupid and like inherently quite silly, and they only work if you kind of commit to a tone. Like, I think the The Exorcist is like a really ridiculous film, but it kind of works because it just. And, you know, starts off and it's like, this is a fucking horror movie. Settle in and there will be no jokes. But he's too playful a filmmaker to, like, commit to a really miserable tone. So it kind of starts a base level of comedy and then all these other stuff come into it. Uh, not, I didn't understand all of it, but I thoroughly enjoyed uh, not understanding it. Maybe it's just loads of references to, like, obscure Jalo movies. Or well, that's the thing. It's like, uh, it is a very distinctive looking movie. And I'm sure there's probably a whole essay to be written about all the European or how shit in Italian Jalo movies. It's uh, citing yeah, all this is all this is lost on me. Duke of Burgundy is clearly like a pastiche in its yeah. style, but it was a pastiche of stuff that I didn't watch. It's kind of like softcore porn or something, which I've not seen. <laughs> so, well, this is a similar thing, but also mixed because it's his first film set in Britain, and it's I think it's set in like the either late 80s or early 90s, or could be the 70s. It's a kind of nowhere time, but it's also a kind of parody of that kind of like ugly 70s hangover chic where there's just a lot of like very terrible carpets and curtains and wood panels and yeah. I don't know. It's a real aesthetic uh, kind of pick and mix. How how much of a comedy is it? I mean, does it just play like a, like an extended sketch? Like, Is it genuinely scary? Yeah, there's some general... There's, I wouldn't say scary, but there's some horrific moments in it. When the dress, you know... When the dress does the curse. When the dress does the cursing. It's scary. And it's got this really brilliant score from Caves of Antimatter. Not a band I was familiar with. But uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> uh, as you've heard in that clip, it's got this very weird approach where very mundane scenes are just made, rendered very eerie by the way they're shot and this weird score coming in. I read an interview with Peter Strickland where he basically... Is it called ASMR videos? ASMR, yeah. yeah, he couldn't sleep, so he got into like watching vlogs of people opening bags and stuff. And then he like based the entire film off this so i'm sure that it's like a sort of sound designer's like dream of like really weird textured soundscapes i think the cast do a really good job of sort of like finding the tone of the film which is somewhere between like so naturalistic it's really boring and absurd and uh marion jean baptist is like the standout uh and yeah i don't know why she's in more things because i've only seen her in like two movies one was the Mike Lee film Secrets and Lies. One is this in Fabric Mad film. She's got she's got range, you know. Yeah, it's a very distinct filmmaker. So she was brilliant in it. And there's a lot to unpack in it. There's a lot of symbolism. The most obvious reading of it is that it's a sort of satire of consumerist culture, and the shop kind of op- operates as a sort of coven. And like once you buy something, you've sold your cell to like the dark forces. But it's it's so odd and uh, weird. And very entertaining that I, you can just sort of watch it and not think about it in a way. There's a lot of there's a succession of like very winning jokes. And I was, when I was researching this review, a lot of like the sort of Strickland heads were like, oh, you know, he's lost it. He's a bit purel now. And I was like, I'm much more on board with like the sort of dumb jokes, Peter Strickland, than the thick, uh, opaque lesbian drama at Strickland. Well, there's a whole joke in the opaque lesbian drama <laughs> where they're arguing about buying some kind of sex toilet. There's yeah, like someone who comes by to like, it's like a sex toilet. Yeah, salesman. she's the woman in the clip. Oh, okay, right. The yeah. sex toilet wo- woman. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, that that literally is toilet humor. Yeah, I think in Fabric is more like that scene. If that's any, so if you really like the the toilet sex salesman scene, <laughs> this is the film for you. Yeah, and Sounds it's great. just it's genuinely different. That's not a particularly good reason to see a film. It's different to a different film, so it must be good. But yeah, I just had a blast watching it. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in. So let the chat begin. Stop talking now. You know, I really thought In Fabric would be one of the weirdest films of the year, but somehow. Yeah, so so yesterday, this is the latest film from Danny Boyle. He uh, uh famous for many things, including 
probably most relevantly to this film, directing the uh, 2012 London Olympics opening ceremony. And it's written by uh, Richard Curtis. Um, it's the, the the premise of this, which we talked about on the podcast before, did sound like a joke that someone had come up with purely to give us content. But they went and turned it into a whole film. They carried through on their threat to make a film out of this. Uh, the premise is, it's this normal, regular guy. He's like a jobbing guitarist who's trying to sell his own songs, but he cannot get anywhere with them, uh, played by Himish Patel. And Lily James plays his manager, who's just like his friend, basically, called Ellie. And he, on one day, gets hit by a bus at the same moment as a worldwide inexplicable blackout that lasts for like 12 seconds. He wakes up in hospital, and the Beatles don't exist. What? What? The Beatles don't exist. No! They're gone. The Beatles are gone. And he no. Googles them, and he just gets pictures of Beatles. Uh, in a in a gag which is just could not be wrung out more over the course of the film and he subsequently makes a hit for himself he's no longer a struggling artist but he becomes very successful and famous by playing their songs here is a clip of him playing yesterday to a stunned uh, audience of his friends and family i said something wrong now i long for yesterday when did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? I saw this film first at the Peckinplex. Great yeah. cinema. That's a good place to see it, actually. I saw it in a fucking Everyman. And uh, when I was leaving, there was a group of teenagers, and one of the group of the teenagers remarked that it was the worst film they'd ever seen. <laughs> I told you it was dreadful, and you should avoid it at all costs. And I went to see What did it. you do? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it is one of the most torturous viewing experiences I've had in the cinema in a while. I know that the whole idea of it is supposed to be this kind of fluffy, like unobjectionable thing that really no one should find like a struggle to watch. But it was so hard for me to get through it. I've never walked out of a movie, but I really did come close to walking out of yesterday. And I'm a big fan of the Beatles. I don't know if that makes the movies more or less appealing, but I don't know. Amongst its numerous sins, I think that it, it completely fails to sell the Beatles. There's a, there's a, there is an opportunity in this premise. It's obviously quite of a kind of a dumb idea, um, but there is something in the idea of be- the Beatles, which are this complete cultural background noise, where some of their songs are, are so saturated that they're they're practically like folk songs. You know, they're, like it's hard to imagine anyone even wrote them. They just seem like songs that everybody knows. I mean, I I remember one time at school there was a kid in our class who hadn't heard of the Beatles, and in what is perhaps a rather cruel thing. The teacher made everyone in the class go around and name a different Beatles song, like and everyone could do that, you know, because just that's just how you know. And that kid's name was Richard Curtis. <laughs> that was Richard Curtis. Yeah. So, like recontextualizing the music in this world where it's fresh and new and nobody has ever heard it before, which is like not a way that we're used to experiencing the Beatles, is potentially interesting. But I kind of got the impression this movie was written by somebody who doesn't like music and doesn't like doesn't like the Beatles. It's a bit like someone's just read on paper that they're the best band ever and all of their songs are masterpieces. And they're all just presented to you as though you and the audience are supposed to immediately start crying as soon as you hear, I saw her standing there or whatever, played by a different guy with a totally, totally different instrumentation. And a lot of the times he's not playing their best songs, like not their most transcendent songs. So I just find the whole way that the premise of the film was executed was like extremely weird to me. There's a scene where he supports Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran's in the movie a lot. And he goes to Russia. Some could say too much. <laughs> you may say too much. I don't think he was like the worst thing in it, to be honest. He's fine. But anyway, so he's, he's supporting Ed Sheeran. He goes to Russia to play this like supporting act. And he plays back in the USSR, which is like, I like that song. But it's clearly not one of the Beatles' best songs. It's, no. a, it's, a, it's like it's a pretty like th- throw away kind of tossed off song he might as well have gone there and played rocky raccoon or something yeah yeah there's like a lot of songs on the white album that are just kind of little ditties that are obviously not masterpieces and they're especially not masterpieces when they're being played by literally one guy with electric guitar like, there's no band there's no backing singers and like the crowd goes fucking wild it's like the most incredible music they've ever heard in their lives are all falling over themselves and i'm like it's, i just don't i just don't buy it you know, like if if you if you if the me- if the music of the Beatles actually does mean something to you, you know, and if it is that like transcendent and brilliant, then you can make a film that like engages with the material and presents it in a way that convinces you of why it's good. 
you know like yeah a bit a bit of a sort of random i mean sort of random comparison something like amadeus the uh, film about mozart sure a film which like uh uses his music in the soundtrack and also has scenes of him composing it and performing it and presents it in such a way as to convince you that he's a genius even if you are not a huge mozart fan yeah. And this is a film that doesn't engage with the music, which is supposed to be the whole point of it. So I didn't care for that. Yeah, I think it also stems from the fact that the main character is so weird. It's such a sort of bizarrely misconceived protagonist in that he seems to, like, at the beginning, like he's a struggling, kind of busking guy with a guitar. He seems to hate being a songwriter. He kind of hates it. He does a gig. He fucking hates it. And then, like, he plays Beatles songs. He hates that. <laughs> Becomes famous. <laughs> Can't stand it. The more famous he becomes, the more he hates doing it. Girl falls in love with him, hates that. <laughs> Makes him really <laughs> miserable. And like the sort of conclusion, we're not giving away to say it's got a happy ending, but he just seems more resigned to his fate by the end. <laughs> and like the, there's no audience avatar for like the what if, like, you know, it's like a sort of what if you suddenly woke up with superpowers. It's kind of like, you know, the thing, but he's just like, seems very indifferent to pissed off about it just perpetually annoyed by it he does not get any satisfaction from fame and glory at all no so, so i don't why know. Does he even bother why does he even bother yeah it's just a, a bizarre film none of it works the crux of the movie is him deciding whether to go with lily james this beautiful woman who seems to worship the fucking ground he walks on <laughs> But he, he's like, either do that or go on James Corden's chat show. Like, that's the fucking crux of the movie. Like, the dramatic heart of, like, when he has to choose between the two paths. And it's like, I don't think it quite sells. I mean, I know it's a popular show, but... Yeah. Why? Like, uh, he is so passive. The only thing he does, which is has, displays any agency, is recording the first batch of songs. Other than that, he just, like, all these, uh, you know, suits tell him to do stuff. And at any point, he could be like, no, I'll just go home. But for some reason, it's kind of treated in the movie as if he's been like eaten up by the machine. When you could just be like, uh, no, actually, and just leave. You yeah. know, like there's no, the dramatic stakes, the actual building blocks. It's like when I, you watch it and you just think that nobody involved has ever made a film before, which is really strange given how successful the creative forces in it. And uh, Danny Ball, I think he used to be famed for like his movies, whatever he thought them were never boring because he directs every scene like he's had like 12 Red Bulls. He's so energetic. But this is such a fucking slog to get through. It's easily his worst film by some distance. I think, I don't know, post-opening ceremony, Trance was kind of terrible. TT was bad. Steve Jobs was bad. <laughs> this is terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. Richard Curtis, I don't know. Richard Curtis, I think he's the biggest culprit here, to be honest. I mean, yeah, Danny Boyle, his kind of music video style fails to enliven. Like, there's only... No matter how interesting you try to find putting the place name of where a scene is set, yeah, like projecting it onto buildings or whatever, you know that cannot make up for uh, a film being bad. And I, th I think, yeah, Richard Curtis deserves the most blame here. And what you were saying about um, how the dramatic engine of the film basically doesn't really work, like on a, on the very basic formulaic function, you know, it kind of presents itself as a film which is supposed to be a formulaic rom com, kind of classic Richard Curtis rom com with a bit of a wacky premise. Like it's much more about there's a lot the romance is really the main dramatic engine of the yeah, film more, so more more so for some reason than than it's like out there concept um and, and the fact that, that that stuff doesn't even work uh I think that's what I found so excruciating about it it's just how half ass it seemed to be from that from that perspective yeah the thing that it made me think of and I was trying to look this up but I couldn't find where I saw this written but like someone was theorizing about Adam Sandler's bad films and how they're basically like a sort of money making scheme you know where yeah, he makes a movie warm that, weather location. The warm weather location, with yeah, exactly, with, with all of his friends in it, exactly, yeah, and he pays himself loads of money, and you know the film is going to break even, and so it's just like a totally cynical exercise of money making. That's the sensation that I got watching this movie. Like Richard Curtis, like not engaging with it on any level, no interest in the people he's writing about, and it just in and he's and he's still making a film that's a, like even those like those Adam Sandler films are just supposed to make you laugh. This is supposed to make you cry. Yeah. You know? supposed to be like this heartwarming romance you're going to get tied up in and i was like you don't fucking care about this don't pretend to me like you were interested in what you were doing when you wrote this movie like you've not thought about it at all it's just a completely tossed off like thing you know and i and that sort of sheen of sentimentality is so 
like it doesn't work at all if it's not done in a sincere way yeah if it's done in this old weary hack way by someone who's like written the same kinds of stories like a million times and is just running on it on fumes then it's just a bit revolting and yeah i just didn't buy it i feel like the film was just continually bullshitting me uh and i didn't appreciate it i was being sold a, a bill of goods and also i i like the depiction of the romance like this is one of the most bad female characters i've seen in a while like poor i felt so bad for lily james she she could not have been trying harder with this material she was trying harder than anyone else in the movie yeah actually maybe him himish patel the main guy he's probably trying quite hard because he had to sing all those songs but in terms of the material she was given lily james's character is she absolutely worships him as you mentioned earlier it's not really clear why he doesn't seem that great he's fine kind of surly it's kind of surly he's just like a sort of normal man but she fucking loves him uh does everything for him like drives him places like is his manager books him on these gigs that nobody comes to it's like quite a thankless task uh, she's very dedicated to him and she doesn't really display much of an inner life you know she's a bit like she reminded me of like a manic pixie dream girl character where lazy writers instead of writing a three-dimensional character they just write a flat character and then give them a few wacky quirks to kind of you know convince you that there this is someone interesting when there's actually nothing there and they only exist you know to further a male character story but she doesn't even have the quirks like literally her all she is is like this bundle of joy who smiles come on she wears some unflattering dresses she's like a she's like a doll uh, you know she's literally like a doll she's just there to like smile and be pretty and i just found that i was a bit like i feel really bad for you to have to do you know go through all this mugging and she the amount of mugging she does is crazy i think she she kind of comes across a bit like she's taken something you know yeah like she's had she's taken a pill or something because the amount of energy and like pep in her performance is just unreal and it is quite charming you know but it's she's just working with this you know less than uh terrible material so i don't know she comes away unscathed i would say yeah i think she's okay and like Kate McKinnon and Jill Fry like have the kind of broadest comedy characters and they sort of acquit themselves quite well. Kate McKinnon is, seems to have ignored her script and is just doing her own material yeah, in the, a way that's much preferable to the Richard Curtis stuff. The, the bit I found the funniest was when uh, Jack tries to like slip in one of his original compositions amongst the Beatles songs and she's like, it's terrible, but I don't want to... It's simple, but not charming. And I don't want to listen to it again to find out why. And it's a bit like, is she just like ad-libbing her opinion on the film? And like <laughs> her character's only in it for the money. It's like, is Kate McKinnon just like picking up the paycheck and is like, sure, whatever. Yeah. I was like, a bit of fourth-wall breaking uh, meta-commentary from Kate McKinnon there, which I welcomed. But yeah, it's also... It feels like it's been heavily re-edited. Like, it feels like char- something's gone wrong with the test screenings because just scenes do not flow on from each other elegantly and the final act is like a sort of deus ex ed sheeran thing which comes out of nowhere and uh yeah it's like you could delete large chunks of this film and it's make as much sense as it does currently it's like it's... i just don't think richard curtis should work again <laughs> i really don't i think like that should be it like stop now he's you know? losing his mind i think he's losing it he's just completely and I, lost I was it. i was i was losing it <laughs> I had like for the last 20 minutes of this film I'd taken my glasses off and I was just like staring downwards because I was in pain. It's a bit like yeah I don't know it's mad. It's like you've been presented with like a car and been asked to review this book. <laughs> it's like it's just not it's not the thing you're asking me to you know <sighs> it's like this is just nothing about this it's functions. So I don't understand how we could like read the script and be like oh okay yeah. Hmm. It's this like... fucking zombie 90s culture that yeah. you can't be killed off you know we all enjoyed the 2012, uh, well, not all of us, you know. I mean, yeah. I enjoyed it at yeah. the time. I thought it was fun. I liked the celebration of the NHS and stuff and when the Rush. Of the Queen and whatever. You know, but seven years on, that world has evaporated. That world where you could convince yourself it's you all going to be it's fine. It's all going to be okay. All you need exactly. is love. Exactly, yeah. Like, that was a hollow message at that time, really. And, uh, you know, but, but people invested in it and felt like it wasn't. And but it's clear that it was hollow message, and it, that couldn't be more true now. And this attempt to like keep that dream alive with this extended '90s is not healthy. It's unhealthy. You know, we gotta we gotta let this go. I mean, I listened to Kermo's review of uh, yesterday. He's an old man, and he was he's an old man. I mean, he he should have been the fucking main character in this movie. Honestly, yeah. it's his wish fulfillment fantasy. He should have starred in this film. I think I would have liked it a lot better. <laughs> sure, he's probably gonna act. Sheeran can act. Second so commode. <laughs> Put Kermode in it. Yeah. Um, but uh, he was saying how like the film was his happy place, 
and you know he just let it wash over him and sure you can quibble with it but it's you know that's where he wants to be and i was like you need to get out of there like the happy place is rotting your brain probably forever yeah it's not good it's not psychologically good for that to be a happy place like you need to wake up man i don't know what world you're living in but it's not the real one yeah (laughs) (laughs) wake the fuck up man open your eyes wake up sheeple yeah yeah, I, mean, I don't know what more I can say about it. Nothing about it works. Long, that was quite a long rant, I suppose. Um, so, in conclusion, Richard Curtis is a complete hack, and he doesn't even like the Beatles. I'm, I'm convinced that it's just like Damien Chazelle doesn't like jazz. I don't think Damien Chazelle's a jazz fan, and Richard Curtis is not a Beatles fan. Bullshit. Bullshit. I hate it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah anymore we did actually we got through without doing any puns which is better than most reviews i must say of yeah. this movie till right just then <laughs> <laughs> yeah a long and winding slog yeah anyway. we cannot work it out we cannot work it out we, we can't work out what the fuck you're trying to do here <laughs> we can't work it out <laughs> we can't work it out when Graf heard something that changed his life what he listened to when John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? And when Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. All right. Well, I got, you know... Got Are you okay, suitably buddy? Wound, suitably wound up by that. It's a hot. It's hot. You know, we we close the windows in here for the sake of the audio quality. So we're all sweating a little bit, feeling a bit wound up. Might have to make use of that bed just to work out some of the. Got uh, <laughs> hate fuck me. Got hate fuck. <laughs> okay, cool. I'm down. <laughs> I'm down to clown. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's very obliging of you. Um, okay, I don't. I. I I'm not sure about my schedule just because i'm freaking out about my sure, dissertation of course. so i think the podcast might be a little irregular um but we will be back we're on a hi- episode 197 so we've, we've got to get to 200 in Absolutely. 2019 so we, we will be back um maybe just for me to insist that spider-man far from home is the best film ever made to audible size from you <sighs> yeah <laughs> exactly. okay cool all right see you next week guys bye-bye In uh, a recent article, Time Magazine put down pop music, and they referred to uh, Day Tripper as being about a prostitute, right. and Norwegian Wood about as being about a lesbian. Oh, yeah. Now, I just wanted to know what what your intent was when you wrote it, and what sh- what your feeling is about the Time Magazine criticism of the music that is being written today. We well, were just trying to write songs about prostitutes and lesbians. That's it. <laughs> what kind of girls do you prefer? My wife. Wife. What kind of girl is she? She's a nice girl. What kind of girl do you like? Uh, John's wife. John's wife? Totally not. Nobody likes a small family. <laughs> but the Beatle movement's going over. Yeah, it needn't be a Beatle booster, folks. <laughs> yeah. I must cents. tell you, by the way, that Detroit University have got to stamp out the Beatle movement. I uh, know. Uh, yeah, we've heard about, about Detroit. They think, they, <laughs> they think your uh, haircuts are un-American. Well, it was very observant of them, because we aren't American, actually. <laughs> true, yeah. true, true. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.